Well, thank you for this opportunity to uh, be here. Uh, good morning, everyone, or wherever time period you're in, in the day, listening in. Um, as George has mentioned, my name is uh, Jesse Sidirgo, and um, just want to start by saying, as I was asked to do this message, I was um, hesitant to reply with a yes because of the gravity of such a topic, of the simple thing of pain and suffering. <laughs> and so, um, you know, there's certain messages you do that, you know, like, oh, I can do that, let's do that. And then there's other ones where like, oh, I have to contemplate and I have to really search my soul. And so these are one of those messages. And I want to say that this introduction that was made and um, the image um, that was uh, described is, is really aligned with this message, and we didn't plan this, uh, me and George, and so I titled this Pain and Presence because I sense that when it comes to talking about the struggles and uh, suffering and pain, um, it requires us to pause, um, and I, I want to start by admitting that on the subject of pain and suffering, I find it difficult to articulate its nuances um, and specifics in such a corporate and impersonal venue such as a live stream chapel service. And it's not because everyone is distant and far in their location, but because it's hard to speak about such an intimate topic in, in generalities. Out of most subjects, I would say, pain and suffering or the disorientation that comes as a result of, of loss requires us to engage personally. You know, it's something that requires a physical engagement, a face-to-face, -face, you know, to be able to see the subtle movements of each other's eyes or uh, for us to hear the tone of our voice in, in the stories that we share. Because when we face hardships, the last thing we want to hear is a static theological antidote or some cookie cutter um, solution. Blanket, those kind of blanket statements, um, no matter how inspiring, cannot soothe our pain. And so the purpose of our time today is you're not going to get a teaching today on, you know, the, the whole theology behind suffering. We don't have time for that, nor is it the purpose. Today's a chapel service. Today is not about gathering information and making sense uh, theoretically. It's, it's about us being formed. You know, this is a formational time, and that's how I'm approaching today. And so as was mentioned in the introduction, I, before coming to um, Tyndale, I was working at the Young Street Mission um, with youth who were homeless uh, at a drop-in center downtown called Evergreen uh, Young Street Mission. And, and when I came there, I was fresh. You know, I just, I came and I, I'm pretty good upbringing. I didn't have too much of a rebellious period. I didn't engage too much suffering, I would say, in my life. So I came in with this naive optimism in how lives are going to be changed and how compassion would triumph over despair. And over the first few years, I would say that when I would encounter, you know, the pain and the suffering of the youth and their struggles, um, and I would see it week after week and day after day, I, I, was, I was pretty resolute those first few years in my aspirations to usher them, um, usher them out of their struggles. You know, I wanted to be that, that big brother to them um, that they needed, you know, the shoulder for them to lean on. 
it's very much, as you know, as you can predict, it's like a messianic complex that I, I, I had. And, it, and many of us might share this. It's the impulse we have to, to share that piece of wisdom um, that will bring them clarity that you're working with or someone that you're, uh, is in struggling and, that, and, and you're hoping that it'll just clear things up for them by saying the right thing. Or for me, perhaps, it, I felt like, oh, you know, it's just the right embrace, you know, the, the right amount of tension that it's just going to make them break through and they're going to cry and they're going to release and finally they'll have that kind of freedom because they trusted me. But I would say that when I was there, it, I didn't have that effect, you know. Um, I didn't exude that. I don't know, maybe it's my awkward hugs or, you know, my bony, like, uncomfortable hugs. It's not comfortable to hug me as much as maybe others. And, and maybe, like, I found that I didn't have the right words a lot of the times. I would be stumbling and I, I would say something and it just never took uh, hold. And I found that each year that passed, working in that drop-in center, you know, every year that passed, the less I knew, actually, how to... Uh, engage and to wrap my mind around the appropriate response. Because you'd think that the more suffering uh, you engage with, the better you'd be at saying the right words um, or being that presence. But the honest truth is that the more I rubbed shoulders with the pain of these youth, the less competent I felt to meet their needs. It just became this insurmountable obstacle that I I couldn't tackle. And it bothered me because I, I wanted to be that help. I wanted to be someone who was there for, 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 for them. And I just, I recall one time where I was speaking with a youth, and this youth was sharing to me um, some deep struggles of their past, and that they were physically and sexually abused um, by um, his uncle, and then, and sharing all the stories behind it, and it was pretty gruesome. And then I remember, like particularly at that moment, it's been a few years I was there, and I remember just having like nothing to say, like nothing could come out of me. And, and I didn't say anything, like I literally didn't say anything. And it was a long, awkward pause until the youth, to the point that the youth said, aren't you supposed to say something? And then we both kind of, and then we both kind of laughed because it's like, I'm like, I got nothing. I, I just, I really have nothing. I'm just trying to absorb what just happened here. And so you might be tuning in today and hearing uh, me talk and being of no comfort to you, knowing that I am as much of a student to suffering as anyone here. But you know, the point I've come to realize more and more as I engage and I face things that uh, have been difficult for me, I've seen, you know, loss, very young lives that have been lost to drugs and addiction to, um, and, and I've seen certain things. And as I go through these struggles and I witness them and I experience these times where we sit together, I, I find that suffering is a mystery, you know. It's something that is very hard to articulate and is so particular to each person that it feels like I can't even engage with it. And the mystery of suffering and the lack of ability for us to contain it or to manage it or to control it, um, it it surfaces for many of us and for myself a different side of us that that I'm not comfortable with, you know, that many of us are not comfortable with. Because we are accustomed as a society and in the West here, we are accustomed to have at arm's reach 
the tools and the practices and the strategies to overcome barriers, right? If you just have the right practices, then we can figure it out. But once you encounter things like suffering and pain, that be, it goes beyond any kind of sense of orientation of how to grasp it, um, we are lost and, and, and we can't figure that out. And it's quite disorienting. But in experiencing pain, we tend to, I believe, skip over or bypass those logical practices and reaction. Suffering tends to unearth the most fundamental and often carnal aspects of our beliefs and intuition. You know, I have a friend who just the other day was mentioning how she went through um, uh, uh, cancer and was going through chemo and a deep suffering. And in her most difficult times, it didn't matter whether there was people around her supporting her, giving her food and attending to her at that time. It, her, it was in, in, she was incapable of being grateful or acknowledging those things because the pain was so, so intense that that is the only thing that was pronounced in front of her. And she couldn't, as, as amazing as the people around her was, she couldn't see it because the pain was blurring in front of her. The pain just took up all the space. And so as you can tell by this line of thinking, this, it can often lead us into a fatalism a dire outlook of the future. And I would say that part of the reason um, at times for me I, that I have embraced sometimes this grim, uh, hard, and authentic reality of suffering is, is that I feel like I have reacted um, to my past, to my narrative, uh, to my experience in the church where I'm reacting to that triumphant, you know, God is good. No one's here, so... All the time. All the time, God, I mean, we're, I'm reacting to that, that sense of, um, you know, everything's going to be fine in the end if you just believe. And, and, and those kind of proclamations I heard growing up. And those kinds of proclamations, I believe at that time when I grew up, stirred my faith to believe for miracles. Yet it was one that often neglected to acknowledge the pain in me and in those around me. Um, so I, it, it felt often conflicting. The, the realist and the dreamer uh, were at odds uh, with one another, and no direction seemed to be right. And so today, in just sharing a little story about Jesus, I, I find that there's a point in Jesus' narrative and his story that I want to highlight today that where we can perhaps resolve this tension or attempt to articulate this resolution in some way. Because in this story, um, we can observe the paradox of the person of Jesus, both his sovereignty and his humanity at the face of suffering. So this story, it begins with uh, Jesus, um, who has a friend, and this friend is very sick. And his sisters uh, send word to Jesus, telling him that, Jesus, the one you love is sick. And so Jesus hears this, and he's in another town. And at this point, Jesus starts to share with his disciples. So he hears the news, and he says to his disciples, um, he says to them, um, so do not worry, everyone. Uh, uh, this, his friend's sickness won't end in death. That's what he says to his disciples. That God will somehow be glorified by this situation. And... And after hearing this and sharing this to the disciples, everything will be fine. He won't, he won't die. Um, he does something 
he does something strange. Um, he doesn't get up, pack his bags, and go and meet him. He, he doesn't rush to see him. In fact, he waits two days uh, before telling his disciples to start packing their bags and saying, let's go to Judea, where his friend is. And so we have, in this moment here, a God with full knowledge, Jesus God, with full knowledge of the end of this story. You know, he's confident that his friend will be okay, so confident to the, pack, to the fact that he waits two days before he starts his journey to, to Judea. He's not in a hurry. It's not an emergency. He knows it's going to be fine. So he just waits. But when he arrives, uh, when he arrives uh, to that place, he learns that his friend, who, it's no mystery here, perhaps, John 11, his friend Lazarus has died. And one of his sisters Martha tells him she wishes he would have come sooner and that maybe something can still happen here, you know. And Jesus confirms again, you know, and he says to Martha, he says, your brother will rise again. And Martha types, she, she takes it as like, yeah, I, yeah, there will be the resurrection of the dead. I know I'll see him again. It's like, you know, when someone dies and someone says, don't worry, you'll see them in heaven once again. It's small comfort to her. She's like, yeah, maybe the resurrection of the dead, it might, it might happen And so let me stop at this moment in the story, because in this moment in the story, so far, when you look at this Jesus and how he's responding to this struggle, when I look at him, I see a stoic, kind of level-headed man who is confident and in control. And I look at that, but then something changes, something changes when he meets the other sister, Mary, and he comes closer to meeting Lazarus. It says that when Jesus saw her, meaning Mary, when Jesus saw her weeping, this is the other sister, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, it says that he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Troubled. You see this Jesus who knows what's going to happen, he forecasts it, he is God, he knows that everything is going to be fine. But in that moment, when he sees Mary and he sees the other people weeping, it says in his spirit, it was, he was troubled. Why is he troubled? I mean, the game plan is set. He knows it's going to be a happy ending. Yet the sight of all these people weeping causes him to be troubled. And I think it's a unique moment. It's a unique moment because it appears as though his humanity is at odds with his sovereignty. And maybe the theological professors can correct me on this. But that despite the certainty of a happy ending, the moment in Jesus being with those loved ones of his, it compels him to enter into the pain that they feel. As illogical as it may be, because he knows what's going to happen. If I was him, I would come to that situation, like I have... Like, I have three kids, and if my kids come crying and suffering over, like, not having their yogurt, I'm like, it'll be fine. Here's your yogurt. I know, like, they'll be, like, on the table, and I can't reach them. They, they're whining about it. In my head, I'm like, don't worry. I got it. Here it is. Um, in that situation, Jesus knows, but yet he comes into their time of weeping, and it's a unique moment. When I look at this, I think it's empathy. It's empathy in its purest form, in its most extreme form, because he knows what the outcome is, yet 
he can pause on that resolution or that antidote. He's able to pause in getting to that solution and lingering with them in that moment. He doesn't hurry to the miracle. He doesn't rush to the solution, even when the solution directly addresses the anguish around him. He sits with us in our struggle. And I think this tells us something about God's view of suffering. It tells us that the moments of suffering we experience is equal or even more valuable than the solution or the miracle waiting around the corner. That the cross, for example, it's a good example, the cross, the cross, for example, in all its dreadful demise is a necessary road that must be crossed before entering into resurrection. So Jesus asked them at that moment, he says, so where have you laid him? And they say, the people, everyone who's weeping around him say, come and see, Lord. And it's at that moment in which he physically sees the dead body of his good friend Lazarus that he weeps. And something about the physical sight of death and witnessing the loss among friends and family that brings his troubled spirit to a tipping point in which his body reacts to the pain. And he cries. And in our day today, with all of these GoFundMe campaigns and all of these desires for us to change the world and to make impact to those across the ocean or in different places, I feel like at times we really don't know what compassion is until you see death and you are face-to-face with someone who is suffering, that is the moment that draws reactions in us that is more than a like or more than a retweet or more than something that is so superficial. It causes us deep, deep agony and pain inside of us. And for those of us in ministry or those seeking to be in ministry, I would just encourage you um, to never let your heart be calloused by the sight of suffering and death. Never let it be something that we say, yeah, I'm just going to do this again, and, and let it casually be something apart. It's, it's something that we should always take as a matter that deserves all of our attention. So no matter how many times you'll conduct a funeral service, no matter how many stories You know, you'll see of families pulling through beyond the tragedy, how many testimonies we hear, or whether you know the story will end well or not. Don't bypass the pain. Don't harden your heart to the suffering uh, in order to preserve yourself. For even our miracle worker, Jesus, lingered in the sorrow. And not only in this story, but through also just his whole incarnation, we see a God who enters and lingers in this world of pain. And so, well, going back to my story about me at the Evergreen Drop-In Center being paralyzed 
with nothing to say, having empty words, what I would like to point to you, you to is not my example, but what the gospel points to. Because the gospel enables us to point not to a philosophy, not to a psychological practices, and not to fatalism, but to a person. But in the person of Jesus, who despite his foresight into a glorious future, sees value in weeping by your side. So there's no other God like that, right? There's, there's no God like our God. There's no other God who would come down to this world and take on flesh to ensure that you know that he knows what you are going through. And that's the God we worship. That's the God we were singing about there that we need so desperately. And so today, you might be going through a lot Perhaps maybe it's a a chronic struggle or a chronic pain that we've just been feeling all year. Or maybe you're overwhelmed with a circumstance that leaves you speechless. Or you're feeling emotions that you cannot contain or control. I gotta say, no one's gonna understand you. No one understands you except the one who bore our pain and went to the cross. So Jesus knows. And he comes and sees your brokenness um, and your circumstances and he weeps alongside you. But unlike what the world has to offer, he's, he's not an empty sympathizer. There is substance to his presence because he is a mighty savior, uh, a living, breathing hope. You know, he is a miracle worker that while he empathizes with you, he's someone you can put your faith in. And that's the perfect type of God that we have to lean on. And so let us engage in that. And I want to close today in prayer, um, particularly for some of you who are going through that pain, but also for those of you trying to know how to navigate and lead congregations or ministries um, that you are attempting to resolve and feeling that you need all the answers. Let's just take the example of Christ and one of his angles and one of his attributes and, and, and rest in that. So, Father, we, we acknowledge that it is a very difficult time um, for many of us and that some of us might have experienced loss, um, whether it is of a person, whether it's of a job, whether it's of um, the normalcy of life, God. We, we know that there's a lot happening around us, but as we hear this story and we look at the scriptures And we see you, Jesus, the embodiment of one who is both sovereign and yet a suffering God at the same time, Lord. We we really have a hope. And and we feel like, and I feel right now, that I'm so glad that we're just not talking about peace and hope and love in the abstract. We're seeing it demonstrated in a person. You know, a living hope, a living love, a living peace that we see embodied in your life. And, and, and that's real. And we just want to thank you, Jesus, for um, walking alongside us, God, and, and being with us. 
um, just like you walking with those on the road to Emmaus and, and, and listening to us process and being there with not necessary solutions, Father. Um, help us to know you are near, God, so that even though uh, we don't know the answers at times and we don't know how it's going to fully end, Lord God, that we can know that the goodness and the steadfast love of the Lord is right by our side. And so we acknowledge your presence and help us, God, to see you close by. We thank you, Father. We love you. And thank you for being our counselor. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.